Hello, folks. This is On Carrying a Concern. Stories of friends in service. This week on the show, we have Lisa Graustein. From Beacon Hill Friends Meeting. In Salem Quarter of New England Yearly Meeting, which is where all of the folks we've interviewed come from. A lot of great content on the show today. Um, Explorations of um, what it means for someone to have been raised in the tradition and then kind of lean into the fullness of uh, public ministry, Um, balancing your own sense of call with your community's capacity to name it and see it and recognize it. And uh, a lot of stuff about the ways in which we can both be flexible with our forms and innovate in order to support ministry in ways that work and the some really lovely descriptions of the dance of ministry the the how we might get out of the way to allow the ministry to work through us um so when and how did you come to the religious society of friends So the family I grew up in, my mom was Catholic, my dad was Quaker, and we went to Catholic church during the school year and Quaker meeting in the summer because there was no Sunday school at my mom's church. But I also attended an Episcopal school, lived in a Jewish Orthodox neighborhood, and my extended family we spent time with were Buddhist and Hindu. So uh, I had a lot of religious exposure and education and ceremony, and when I was 12, I said, I just want to go to meeting. I don't want to go to Catholic church anymore. I had to go somewhere. Um, and I was clear at that age, the Catholic church was not for me, which turned out to be very right. Um, and really, I really liked New Haven meeting where I was growing up. So this was in Connecticut? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the question of what drew you, so what drew you to the Religious Society of Friends uh, over the Catholic church? So a lot of the rules and ceremony just didn't make any sense to me in the Catholic Church. I also was a pretty ardent little proto-feminist at 12 and was just not buying the exclusion of women in the Catholic Church. I'm queer. I wasn't aware of that at 12, but I think some part of me sensed that there was going to be no space for me there. But I think the biggest part was that I was pretty Bible-phobic at that age, which you can be quite happily in a Quaker unprogrammed meeting in New England, and you can't be in the Catholic Church, but also the sense of... um, when we would get up and recite these prayers in Catholic Church, I had just been studying World War II and I'd just been watching, I remember one time watching these clips of Nazis just saying this stuff, and not the Catholics are Nazis, and I don't want to make that analogy, but I heard the same kind of deadpan tone when, you know, 200 people in my mom's church would just say this prayer, and I thought, I think if you're praying, you're supposed to, like, feel it and mean it, and I had always just been taught to say it with there was probably some catechism lesson about it, but it didn't it didn't ever sink in of like, why am I saying this? And I think also there was space in Quaker meeting for me to sort of figure out who I was in a way that I felt like church was telling me who to be. The Catholic Church has been a really great spiritual home for my mom, and she's been an incredible activist there. So I also don't want to diss Catholicism. At 12, that was sort of my experience. And then I think I... I found the Young Friends program in New England in ninth grade, and that was just revelatory to me of both what a really inclusive community could be, what a space could be that really had space for everybody in an unconditional loving way, and then also an introduction to kind of deeper spirituality as connected to the other parts of our lives that I had just not experienced anywhere. And so it 
it became home and felt like home and has been home ever since. And what um, are all those reasons why you've stuck around? Yeah, I think, I mean, I just, every time I go to somebody else's religious service, which I always feel grateful for, I just think, why aren't we sitting quietly? Where's the listening? Like, I'm just like such an innately Quaker, unprogrammed friend. So I think it's that. I think it's the sense that there's continual growth and that you have a piece of the answer and I have a piece of an answer and both of us have a piece of it down the road. I think it's the the intertwining for me of faith and social justice as not being separate at all either in hope or in pragmatism of how we live our lives. It's just over and over again the values I go back to. You know, like at work when we're asked to vote on stuff, I'm like, no, this is a bad way to make a decision. There's a better way. And so it's not even like one thing. It's just I find myself anytime I'm in the rest of the world of thinking like, oh, no, Quakerism would make this better. And not in a like I want to take over the world kind of thing, but just how clearly Quakerism speaks to how I think I'm wired and oriented in the universe. Um, as a young um, friend, did you have other people in your community of New Haven? Um, did you have a community that was there, or was most of the young friends community a yearly meeting? It was mostly a yearly meeting. By high school, I think there were two or three, beginning of high school, two or three other young friends in my meeting. Senior year, we all had younger siblings, so there was kind of like a crew of six or seven of us. But it was really the young friends community, and it was going to friends camp, and it was, you know, on the weekends there weren't retreats. A lot of times we were getting together as we got older and could drive. It was really the broader community, and just having, you know, more than two friends and our younger siblings. Yeah, so it was, it was the broader community, definitely. So I really like the way in Lisa's story, she, like many people we spoke to, has been exposed to lots of different religious traditions. Sometimes in the interviews we've done, people have done their own journeys through religious traditions. She was exposed to it through her family. And then at the age of 12, it became really clear that in the Catholic Church, the practice of reciting a rote prayer was a form that didn't have power. She doesn't talk about it that way, but that's what I hear in what she said, that that kind of rote recitation didn't have any meaning or oomph behind it. She thought that people should be feeling it, and she wasn't, and didn't sense that others were either. Yeah, no, and I think that's really interesting because um, the there's always this challenge regarding, I mean, the, the history of the way that the, the, the silent waiting worship emerges, right, is... If, if a form doesn't have power, don't do it. And uh, I, I often feel a tension between um, if a form doesn't have power as compared to I don't like it, mm. right? Or I, it doesn't have power for me. And I think about the ways in which the kind of uh, it's not working for me, Lisa doesn't say, therefore, no one should be doing it. Right. Right. It's that ha works for my mom. It's been very important in her life and in the life of many others. Um, but it, it didn't resonate. It didn't speak to my condition. Right. And so she was clear early on to, to shift out. And I, and I do like that balance to say it, it, it didn't make any sense to me. 
Um, it, it wasn't tracking. And now looking back at my youth and, and the way my mom and presumably others are part of that, like good on them, but it just wasn't my spot. I can also see a, a real connection between the way she talks about that it doesn't work for her and in her experience to what she she names as the one of the reasons that she stuck around, that emphasis on continued growth and that you have a part of the answer and I have a part of the answer and maybe we each have a different part of the answer down the road. So really an emphasis on continuing to listen with contingency, that truth is contingent, I hear in there. So what I hear is the way that she she listened to her her own concerns about and experience with the rote prayer and other the non-affirmation of women in ministry, for example, other parts of the Catholic Church and decided to go to the Religious Society of Friends exclusively. And then she stuck around because of the emphasis on continual growth and that we each have a piece of the answer. That moving away from one experience to another one was based on her trusting that internal experience. And there's something about the way we in the Religious Society of Friends trust our internal experience as we discern together. Yeah, and I also think it's important to recognize that she names that she was Bible-phobic at the time. I think a lot of the times you can track people's stories in the Religious Society of Friends, not just about what they yearn for, but what they want to move away from. Our story many times is, I don't like X, Y, and Z, and so I'd rather not be in a place where they have that. And and that shapes who we are. We're, True. we're people from the very beginning who don't want X, Y, and Z, and so want to find a place absent from it. And what X, Y, and Z have been over the years has changed. But it, it's certainly a tradition that, that is moving away from things they don't like or they don't think have power or they don't think um, are just or, you know, whatever. And I do think that that, that kind of twinning, that I am looking for this kind of power and I do not like that kind of thing. Now, maybe it's part of every emergent tradition, but, you know, when things kind of pop up out of the ground or out of the 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 flavor of the society they're in is often this kind of both and and i think it's really important to kind of recognize that they both function that way for for us let's hear what she has to say about leadings and ministry jump right into the question of how do you understand leadings or being led? So I understand leadings and being led as like clarity of the path forward on a thing you might not have expected. Mm. 
And so that's when I think God just says, oh, here's what you're supposed to do. And I'm going to make it clear to you in some way, whether it's like the person shows up or the need shows up or the space shows up or the gift shows up. But it's something that's a little bit from left field, maybe, or like wasn't like, okay, and next I'm going to go to college and then I'm going to get this job. But it's like, oh, here, you're going to do this. And it just has a sense of rightness about it in the way that when you meet the people who are supposed to be your best friends, you're like, oh, we're just supposed to be friends. Like there's just a rightness about it and a clarity about it. And that sometimes I think they can come on kind of gradually and a sense of like, oh, I'm being prepared, but I'm not quite sure for what yet. And then it's like, boom, there it is. And sometimes it's like, nope, here's what it is. You wake up and it's just clear and this is what I need to be doing now. And have you um, yourself had this experience? Yes. Can you talk about? Yes. So I think the first one was, um, as I said, the Young Friends program in New England was really impactful and important to me. And I had the opportunity when I was in college to start staffing for it. And that wasn't a clear leading. That was just a sense of, of course, I want to go give back and be a part of this community that I so cherished. And that happened at the same time in college that I was realizing I was going to go into teaching as my career, sort of junior, senior year. And I'd been working with a a nonprofit group that some friends and I had started that was teaching conflict resolution and violence prevention in Cambridge and Boston public schools. And so in all these different ways, like I was choosing a career in youth work, I was doing youth work in in Cambridge and Boston public schools, and I was doing youth work in young friends, right? And those are two very different populations of young people. And I loved it. Like I loved every minute of it. And it was clear that I like had some innate skills and I had the capacity to really grow those skills. And so teaching and youth work then became my career path for the next 15 years. And everywhere I went in doing that, I, I felt affirmed and challenged. And I think that's also part of a leading is it's not just like, oh, I'm a great cake baker. I'm just going to make cakes check done. But it's like, I'm doing this thing and it feels really right. And I'm growing and being pushed to learn in all these different ways. And every time I take on a deeper challenge, I'm met with more. So it's that balance of like, the more I step into it, the more I'm given to do it, the harder it gets, the more I'm able to stay in that place. So I think that was sort of the first clearest one. And then that kind of has morphed into what I'm understanding to be my second career and sort of set a second set of leadings, which is all around racial and social justice work. And that grew very naturally out of my youth work, both in what I was encountering as a teacher and a youth worker, but then also in taking the skills that I developed as a youth worker and teacher, which for, for me were a mix of unconditional love and acceptance of the young people in my care and creating structures and spaces in which they could really find their voice and grow and be challenged. And that's what I see a lot of the the adult training and mentoring that I do now to be the same thing is like, how can I unconditionally love you, give you the structure so we can all grow into a fuller place? Have you in um, your uh, sort of testing about next steps, it seems like there's Mm -hmm. a, like a transition happening from being solely Mm -hmm. a teacher to to doing this racial justice Mm -hmm. work. Um, Have you worked with other people to help you with discernment to, to test and shape what the next steps are? Yeah, at different times. I think at different points in my in my teaching and youth work career, there were some really big challenges and I would pull together a clearness committee to kind of help me figure some things out. Um, and definitely when I was coordinating the Young Friends program, I had a support committee that, that sort of would test some of those pieces when I had either different ideas or again, big challenges. I haven't felt the need, like it's been so clear to me what I'm supposed to be doing. I haven't felt a tremendous need to sort of test those leadings. Like I've definitely tried out different workshops and like, let me try doing this and get some feedback. And I found some mentors and elders, but 
the sense of like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm given both internally the skills and externally the people and mentor to do it has just been so clear that I haven't felt like I even need to like question it. Um, it's really satisfying. I know it's really nice. way opening. Yeah. <laughs> um, in your experience of, of the times that you have had, a, you know, pulled mm-hmm. a clearness committee together or, or worked with other folks, mm-hmm. um, what have those experiences been like? What it, for you, I mean, if you mm-hmm. were defining like the role of the clearness committee, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I guess objectively, but also how yeah. has it functioned in your own work? So I think of clearness committees as like a group of people that help you help you listen to yourself into your fullest self or into the like the truth you need to look at. And so I think about some clearness committees have been when I've just kind of been like stuck in the stress and chaos of a situation and a clearness committee is about creating kind of the space and opening to be able to really hear what I already know to be the right next step. Um, I live in a house I've lived in for 17 years that I own with two other Quakers and we had a clearness committee before we bought the house together that wasn't just about like, how are we going to make it work financially, but how are we going to make it work socially? How are we going to make it work financially? How are we understanding what we're taking on so that our boundaries and commitments to each other are clear? And, you know, we've had a few moments over the last 17 years of like, God, but I think that that clearness committee really helped us figure out like what were we called to do and what was the space we were called to create for each other, for our families, and then for the people we invite into our home. And it's been a phenomenal experience. And so I think clearness committees can also be the space where we say, okay, here's this vision or hope that we have. Help us figure out what the practical pieces are so that we don't ever lose sight of that vision and so that the logistics and day-to-day parts of it are always in service of the greater vision. Because when that's true, I find like conflict is just so much less. Because if you and I are about the same thing or I'm about the thing that God is about for me, then really it's problem solving. It's not conflict. Um, and then it's when we lose clarity of what that shared vision is that then there's, and not that conflict's bad. I think a lot of Quakers think conflict is bad and I don't think it's bad. But so I think clearness committees are the space to like work through the internal blocks and the confusion so that the vision and the alignment are clear. Mm-hmm. Did you have a clearness committee for membership when you... I did. I didn't apply to, for membership till after I'd been attending the meeting for almost a decade. And I applied because I was traveling to Kenya for the Friends United Meeting World Gathering. And it was going to be important there that I was a member. And when my letter was read in meeting applying for membership, people actually laughed. And I think they laughed not because it was absurd that I would be a member, but it was absurd that like I had to go through this process because everyone assumed and acted as if I was a member and I did too. So, and when I showed up for my clearness committee, the person who was hosting at their house said, well, I think we're all clear on this. Let's just have dinner. And I kind of said, no, wait, we actually have the clearness committee. I was going to say it was that, uh, that might be dissatisfying. It was a little dissatisfying. Yeah. Yeah. Then they had my welcoming potluck on a day when I was off coordinating a young friend's retreat because that's when it was convenient for the meeting, even though I couldn't be there. So there were ways in which I it didn't feel like it ever really got taken seriously, which was just kind of, I think, where my meeting was that year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sort of this assumption that you already were... Right. Right. And I have to say, like, I had talked to people who talked about the experience of becoming a member as, like, their experience of getting married, that it was just this commitment and this whole other thing. And that was not my experience at all. Like, I really... 
I had never bothered because I'd already felt like a member of the meeting. Like I was, I was clerking ministry and council. I was running our youth programs, the yearly meeting. I was on various committees. I was living with people from the meeting. I was in spiritual, you know, like I was such a part of the meeting practically and spiritually that I felt like my commitment to the meeting had already been made as a member and that the process at that point truly was a formality. Um, and I know it's been different for different people, but I feel, I really, I'm the kind of Quaker who feels like if the inward commitment is there and it's being met outwardly on the other side with kind of equal energy and commitment, then it's there. One of the things that I really like that um, Lisa gives to us is she says a leading um, is a kind of a sense of rightness that can either come about gradually kind of or with a boom. And so I like I like the continuum of gradually and boomily and uh, that that boomily doesn't mean it's a, a necessarily leading, but neither does the gradualness of it, but that we, we are able to experience kind of leadings across a spectrum or, or a or a continuum that seems like a useful thing to think about or at least her experience has been that leadings have sometimes been gradual day by day and sometimes all all of a sudden at once yes and there's that pairing with the way in which there's a rightness and one of the evidences of the rightness is that some the right the right person or the right thing or the right gift shows up. And I resonate with her experience that sometimes it's unexpected. It's, mm -hmm. it's not exactly, it's not, she uses the example of I'm going to bake cakes and I'm really good at baking cakes, but that it becomes evident gradually or boomily, as you say, that, you are being led to something and then something shows up to affirm that you are on the right path. Yeah, no, and I think that was it was really interesting. I mean, it was subtle. I think she didn't make a big deal out of it, but I really heard the fact that she said when she first started kind of serving in the youth leadership capacity, again, kind of in college and then post-college, um, she said, I wanted to give back to my community um, and so I started doing it, but that, she said, that wasn't the same thing as a leading. That was just her thinking up, oh, I want to give back. And so there's nothing wrong with wanting to give back or to do something because of some kind of internal rationale or, um, commitment or ethical commitment or whatever, but she differentiates wanting to do something because it seemed right from, an, from a leading. However, in the course of doing the thing that seemed right, working these youth programs and being a teacher, she then felt as if something began to build in her that was a leading. And I think that's interesting that I think a lot of times uh, we collapse those into one and say, well, if you just are doing the right thing, then that's what the leading is. And she wants to say, no, sometimes that doing the right thing can be the ground for this feeling of rightness that emerges, which is somehow separate than just the doing of it or the wanting of it. Is that how you heard it? Yes. Yes. And I also hear, I think this is important, the point she makes about the that sense of rightness being both an affirmation and a challenge. 
that you were affirmed that you're doing the right thing, and then you're given more to live into. And if you are willing to take the deeper challenge, you are then met with more. Yeah. I like the idea of the deeper challenge, like the ice bucket challenge, and people video themselves doing deeper spiritual challenges and put it on Facebook and encourage other people to do the deeper challenge. What was it? What would it look like? I don't know. They'd be long videos. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, I got a couple other things here that I heard that it seemed like it would be worth talking about. Great. What? Like what? Um, well, and this is a place I think that uh, Lisa is in a different space than than me. Um, she talks about having such clarity. She doesn't feel like she needs eldership or um, testing discernment. Um, and I know for myself, I rarely go more than, I don't know, six weeks without checking in with my uh, committee of care uh, and accountability, um, regardless of whether I feel like I need it or not. I mean, maybe maybe the way you could interpret it is say, I always feel like I need it. And so I do the same thing. It's just that the need is different. Um, but it is interesting, and I think there's a wide variety of perspectives on this too, right? I either you should always have someone in oversight of your work checking in with you regularly, asking what you're doing, and some other people say, "Well, I've got my own." She said, um, "Elders and mentors that I reach out to when I need to, and so that's sufficient." I mean, I think that there are. Thinking of some of the other interviews, um, Brian Drayton I think says a similar thing to the way Lisa talks about it too, which is like, "I've got the people I need to be in touch with when I need to be in touch with them." And, and then my meeting knows what I'm doing in a general sense, and so it's all fine. Um, I tend to be a little bit more maybe neurotic about wanting to make sure that the people who have kind of oversight of the ministry or care or accountability over the ministry are like regularly, clockworkedly part of my life, even if I don't want them to be. Um, and that's kind of a scruple for me. And I, just, I heard that as different in Lisa. That's interesting. I, I mean, I guess I heard a similar thing, but I heard it really around the use of a clearness committee in discerning her most current leading to racial justice and that she recognizes that need for mentors and elders and, and reaches out to them. Yeah. And I think there is this balance, you know, when, if a meeting is clear that someone has gifts in ministry and they should be doing work, right? Does that mean that whenever you get an invitation, you can say yes without checking back in with your meeting because they've already affirmed the gifts? I mean, I think this is something for meetings to really think about. Right, right. What, what does it mean to say, yes, we believe that this person is carrying gifts and should be traveling or doing work in public ministry, carrying this concern out into the world? Does that mean you've kind of upfrontedly given them a yes to go do this stamp no matter what comes in the door or does everything need to be tested? I mean, I think that really is a dance that individuals who are traveling and doing public ministry work, whether they're traveling or not, I mean, whether if they're doing service in the world uh, uh, as a result of a leading supported by their meeting, that balance of how much you check and test versus how much you just presume is part of the ongoing leading and concern you're carrying is, is quite a balancing act. That's right. I, tend, like you, I think, to defer towards bringing things to my committee of care and accountability whenever there's an, an invitation 
just because I feel like the recognition of ministry grows out of the meeting and that committee of care comes from the meeting and that they should oversee it. Also, I would tend to say yes to things that it's not that they're not appropriate, but it's good to also have some space. And sometimes it takes um, people other than me to see that I'm too busy and to remind me that that space is an important thing to um, mind, to tend. Yeah, it also makes me think, though, on the other side of our of our friend, uh, Pastor Phil Wyman, who's a Pentecostal, a progressive Pentecostal uh, uh, pastor, uh, formerly of uh, Salem, Massachusetts, and uh, how he said, I love you guys, Quakers, uh, but I just sometimes wish you'd trust God a little more and get out there. Um, which is an interesting read on on us, right? That we're so hesitant, so needing to test, that we actually underrun the guide instead of just risking and saying, this feels like something I need to do. And I mean, I think there's definitely errors in the side of kind of outrunning the guide. But these days, I think we're much more likely to have problems of underrunning it and doubting the power uh, of the Holy Spirit and in terms of its ability to kind of invigorate our life than we are outrunning. I think that's right. Like the pendulum has swung. It needs to maybe swing back. Question mark. The one thing I will observe about her experience of membership that I think is interesting is that she mentions her noticing that other people's have said, becoming a member was a little like getting married, that there was this significant piece. And to my ears, the way I hear her describe her journey to membership, that she had grown into leadership and involvement and community with her meeting in such a way that she perceived herself as a member, and so did her community, is a lot like the way I understand friends' process around marriage that the clearness committee for marriage isn't about should you guys be married, but is this couple already united by God or the Holy Spirit or in a spiritual journey? It's a, it's a testing to see whether the marriage has already taken place because it's not the meeting that does the marrying. And maybe it's not the meeting that does the membering. Is that the verb? Does the membershiping. It's God who does that work, and the meeting merely recognizes it and affirms it. Yeah, and I think that um, it is interesting, and I heard her, I think the, use, the word she uses was disappointment or something, that, that, that people didn't take seriously or as seriously as she wanted her request for membership. And it seems to me as if, if anyone is ever asking for discernment, regardless of how obvious the answer should be, we do ourselves and the individual a disservice by not taking it absolutely seriously. It doesn't mean we can't laugh, but, but like to, to see what's there. Right. Um, isn't always like the reason we do prayer, and I think seeking out discernment is a kind of prayer, the reason we do prayer isn't necessarily to get answers. It's to be formed and shaped by the process. At least I think so. Yes, I hear that. And I I agree. I hear her disappointment that the process didn't happen. And I think that 
engaging in the process is really important. I, I wasn't trying to say that the process is unimportant, but that um, maybe the, it just sort of struck me the similarity between marriage and membership in, in her sharing of it. I wouldn't advocate for people to skip their clearness for marriage. I think that's a super important, and we, as friends writ large, often tend to treat it as a rubber stamp and not really delve into the juiciness of of the clearness committee. Because she talks about the clearness committee in this way, that they help to listen us into our best selves. And, and that is so important. To listen another soul into a condition of disclosure and discovery may be almost the greatest service that any human being ever performs for another. But in this scrutiny of the business of listening, is that all that has emerged? Is it blasphemous to suggest that over the shoulder of the human listener, there is never absent the silent presence of the eternal listener, the living God? For in Penetrating to what is involved in listening, do we not disclose the thinness of the filament that separates person listening openly to one another and that of God intently listening to each of our souls? Douglas Steer in Gleanings Um, is the work that you're doing now held under the care or support of a committee? No, my meeting is in a pretty broken down place with committees and can't staff its committees and doesn't want to do any more committees. So I, about a year ago, I wrote a letter to my business meeting saying, so look, I'm doing this. I think it's ministry. I'm getting affirmation that it's ministry. I know we don't have any capacity for any more committees. I don't particularly need a committee. I'm feeling very clear and like I've got support in different places. So let's figure out what the relationship could look like. And I met with ministry and council and I think they kind of don't know what to do with me at the moment. So the clerk of our yearly meeting has gotten me an elder, which has been fantastic to actually have an elder there's just some brokenness in our yearly meeting that means some of our traditional forms we don't have the capacity for right now. So I don't have a committee. I am trying, I periodically, I just decided to start acting as if my meeting had said, we want to know about your ministry and keep us informed because I realized that's what I wanted. And instead of waiting to be asked. So every few months I sort of write a letter that I put out over our listserv to the meeting about like, here's what I'm doing in my ministry you know, this quarter. And here's what feels like live. And here's a gift I've been given. And here's what feels like a big challenge. And corporately, there hasn't been any response. But then different friends write back in different ways. It has been really nice. Sometimes it's just people. And I always say, like, here's what I would love prayers for. Sometimes it's people letting me know they're praying for me specifically. Sometimes it's people sharing something with me that they've been doing or thinking about and how what I've said connects to that. Sometimes it's been questions. So I think as we're in this place where we are in our version of Quakerism in New England right now, I think some of it's got to take some different forms as we're kind of going through what feels like uh, the end of a harvest season when like things are a little scraggly, they're not quite dead. You're, you know, like we're just in a, we're waiting for some new rebirth to happen. And it's, I feel it happening in different places in the early meeting, but it's not happening in my monthly meeting right now. 
Do you have any ideas of what the what some new what creative forms could look like that provide support? If our traditional yeah. Forms. So I think elders are great. I don't think we should give that up at all. But I think you know there's a bunch of people in my meeting who have some ministries, and I think even if we just said, "Great, each of you once a month," you know, a different person is presenting at business meeting, and we understand that that's part of how we're holding it, and somebody's going to get together dinner for all of you to get together and talk about it. I think that's one way. I think that for those of us who are clear, are you know not in a beginning place or not in an ending place, when I think you do need a committee sometimes to help you sort of figure out the pieces, I think the question of like, what do you need? You know, I'm a single parent. Man, I need child care. And I need child care that I want to feel like I'm not parking my kid somewhere for a day, but he's off having a great experience while I'm doing this other stuff. You know, I... I would love it if my meeting owned my ministry. Like I do this because I'm a Quaker, but I want to do it because this is what Quakers do. You know, that distinction kind of makes sense. And I think also if we just, my meeting is really threatened by the idea of recording because they think if we record one person, that means we're saying these other people don't have anything to offer. And I, I that's not been my experience of when I've met recorded friends. I haven't felt like, oh, well, you're the cool one and I got tissed. You know, I'm like, oh, awesome. What do you have to offer us? So I I don't know what else exists in that space, but again, from youth work, like anytime I ever affirmed anybody, that was only a gift for everybody, you know, and when young friends every year would pick their ministry and council, I would write a letter to each of their home meetings saying, here's why the young friends chose this person to be on their ministry and council. Here are additional gifts I see in them. I really hope you'll support and nurture them. And some meetings didn't do anything with that. And some meetings like did all this stuff and I could just see... The meetings that did stuff with those letters I sent and those young people, those young people just blossomed. And who they were was richer and bigger. And what they had to offer the young friends was richer and bigger. And when they screwed up, as sometimes teenagers will do, there was a safety net to hold them and catch them that could see their mistakes in light of all their gifts. And I just think pretty much whatever is true of teenagers is true of grown-ups too. And like, why aren't we doing that? So I don't know quite what it's going to look like. I'm trying to keep my pissy self in check around like, all right, everyone's in their process. We're all going to grow there, right? I say I want to love unconditionally people into their fullest selves. Like, how can I do that with the brokenness we've got right now? But I think we're selling ourselves short mm. by not by not either saying this traditional structure still has life or if it doesn't, here's what we're going to replace it with as opposed to we're just not going to do that because somebody's feelings might get hurt. And where do you think that broke? Do you have a sense of, of the, the character or quality of the brokenness? So I think it's a bunch of things. I think part of it is that generationally, the majority of Quakers are still the generation where a lot of people are convinced friends who came to friends in the 60s or 70s mm-hmm. and that there's tremendous life and gifts in that, and that as a body, we didn't always do the education about our traditions that we needed to, and so there's a way in which, and I feel this even having grown up among friends, of sometimes, like, we have the hollow shell of the tradition without the spiritual depth for it. I think just given the demographics of our yearly meeting, that's that's pretty large and significant right now. I think part of it is a lack of corporate discipline of saying, the hurts we've each experienced in our in our lives, if we truly lift them up to our meetings and to God, can get healed. And so like where I experience a lot of the we don't record ministers because that would hurt somebody's feelings as putting the hurts of the world that we experience before 
the greater reality we could live into. And mostly for me, that's about fear. Like where we're afraid to go there with each other, where we're afraid to say, no, really, here's this deeper hurt I'm carrying, or here's really how I need you to see me so that I know I'm still valuable and a member too. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier of where sometimes we join committee work because that's our club, not because we're always in a place to hold the work for the yearly meeting and do it. Uh, and I think that's just, I know for me, like when that shows up, that's when I've gotten sloppy about my own discipline and I am using my community to meet my personal needs, which I think is a fine thing to do, but I'm doing that out of balance with how am I supposed to be supporting my community right now? Or where do I actually get to say, my feelings are really, really hurt. Can someone please take some care of me? But I'm not going to hold up somebody else's process to do that, right? I'm not going to hijack the committee. I'm not going to hijack the meeting. Because like, it's hard as a grown-up to say, my feelings are really, really hurt. Can some people please tell me that I'm an okay person? Like, we don't do that. And I think if we did that, we'd have really much more functional <laughs> meetings and structure, right? Because that's so often where we get blocked and where business meeting goes off the rails is when somebody's own needs just take center over the corporate. And we should be a healthy enough community that we can just say, oh, you're so hurt right now. We're just going to hug you and take care of you. And we're going to keep doing this business. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. I really like the way that Lisa has decided to act as if she had a committee and to submit herself to the discipline of the meeting by bringing a quarterly report. She seems to recognize that this ministry grows out of her meeting. And even if they are, as she names, broken and unable to staff a committee, she still puts the work out there for them to witness and to hold and to respond to. And I think that continuing to do that is it really important practice? Yeah. And it, I mean, it really points to like the sloppiness of humanity, even when humans are trying to be spiritual, right? So here I am saying, you know, it really would be a lot better if she could just meet with her committee every four weeks and they could help her baloney. Because it, it, can't, it can't, our meetings can't always do what we would want. Right. So, uh, you know, I do improvised theater and one of the kind of godfathers of, of um, long form improvised theater said that, um, what we're doing is assembling an airplane mid-flight and that the task is not just to build it, but land it, right? And so, but you can't just practice landing it and you can't just practice building it and you don't have an airplane to practice landing until you've built it. And I think that that's really some ways what I see Lisa doing and also pointing towards when she says, Man, we don't really have the energy and structures in the yearly meeting. She says it's broken. And I want, I think maybe it's broken, but it's also like we just haven't given ourselves permission to experiment. Right. And right. of course, that's coming from an improviser. So like I constantly am thinking about improvisation. But I, I do think that that, yes, maybe there's a brokenness there. But really what it is is saying, what, what, we, what, do we, what can we get with what we got? Yes. As opposed to wishing we had something that we don't. Yes. And you and I have used the phrase, not the airplane, but building the boat that we're sailing in as we're sailing it along. And I think that there's this, she, she helps to point to this creative possibility that exists for us rather than, oh, my boat has holes and it's sinking. And why can't we have the boat that early friends had? It's maybe there are new ways to do this that match our 
uh, abilities and the rhythms of life. Let's have a meeting of peer ministers that support each other and bring things to the meeting. Let's, you know, let, let's ask what we need rather than what the form used to be. And more of a questioning of forms. Yeah, and here we're not even talking about the form of worship. We're talking about how work gets done, right? Um, you know, the, the, the thing that this whole conversation has reminded me of um, is I, I, th- I'm, I very much uh, felt like I was learning a whole lot when Lisa was talking, specifically around the way that she said, look, a lot of this is just people not able to say, I'm hurt. See me, you know. Um, the uh, like pretty much the question anyone is always asking is like do you love me right right the the spiritual reality there is i think a really profound one because this is really key right it's not as if people are pretending to be hurt they really would be hurt if someone was recorded or ministry was named or whatever insert variable here people really would feel bad she's not saying that that's pretend She's saying, but we don't deal with the hurt. We don't deal with the underlying cause, maybe the trauma history that is the cause of that hurt. And instead, we just avoid doing anything to hurt anybody. Right. It really is at some level helping, right? Because we don't want people to feel that way, but it doesn't deal with the underlying thing. And scripturally, right, what we call that is idol worship. So the, the, text that's right there for me that is like right on the same exact issue is idolatry, right? So Moses is up the mountain. He's doing the thing with the tablet and God. And down at the bottom of the mountain is Aaron. And Aaron's just supposed to chill with everyone else who's down there until Moses comes back down. And Moses is gone longer than everyone anticipates. And everyone's anxiety levels ratcheting up and up and up and up. And so Moses... Um, is up there doing his thing with God and Aaron's freaking out with all the people and he's trying to be a good leader. Aaron is, right? He's trying to be a good leader. And he notices everyone getting anxious. And so he says, everybody give me your earrings and bracelets and baubles. And he makes the golden calf. Now, oftentimes Aaron is pointed out as like a bad guy who built an idol. Why did he build it? He built it out of the best intentions. He built it so that those people would like, oh, okay, well, at least we got a little golden calf God here. That'll help us out. And everyone's like, whew, now we can wait for my brother to come back and we can take care of this thing. He still built the thing, man, right? He did it for the right reasons, except that building it didn't really address the, like, look, we might need to live in the same anxiety until God descends in the mountain with my brother. And I think sometimes what we do as friends is say, our hurt is so profound and we want to make sure people don't get hurt, that we'll avoid that hurt. And the avoidance of hurt is our golden calf all the right reasons but instead of just banging through that anxiety and waiting to see what might emerge the next day if we don't build the thing we just you know melt down those earrings exactly and i see that as profoundly connected to a point that you raised earlier in this which is so many of us come to the religious society of friends because there are things that we don't want to have. And very often, that thing that we don't want to have is being hurt. Yeah. And and people were legitimately hurt in other religious settings or traditions and are looking for a place that that they won't be hurt. And 
Um, and and I just love it when she says, oh, you're hurt. What can we do to address that? I'm going to hug you. And you're, we're not going to stop business, but we're going to address the hurt. And it doesn't belittle it either. It's like, no. get, get over it. No, no, no. It, it acknowledges it as real. How much more could we get done if we really acknowledged the ways in which we are hurt, or yeah. the traumas that we bring? We're all anxious here, but we're not going to temporarily undo the anxiety by means of skipping this business or not talking about this issue. We're going to process this. Right. Yeah. But that, but even then processing it might require us to kind of adapt or improvise or develop new forms because we don't always have a good way of dealing with, with trauma, with pain, with woundedness, with disconnection. And because we don't have good means for dealing with that corporately and we refuse to innovate in lots of ways, we're, we're bound up. Thanks, Lisa. So you've talked about having sort of two, two big leadings that have evolved into uh, not just vocation, mm-hmm. but but your the work that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you um, how would you name the leading that is currently kind of laid on you or the concern that you currently carry? Mm-hmm. So I would name it as a ministry of racial and social justice that at its core is about loving people into wholeness mm-hmm. and growing our shared capacity to make real the world that God envisions for us right now, which clearly we don't, we're not living in right now. That happens in a lot of different ways in different spaces. And so a lot of it right now is kind of in workshop spaces that that's where I can access people. And that's where people I think are also drawn to kind of that, that practical, how do I learn how to do this? But holding the practical workshop spaces with a deeper sense of care and attention before, during, and after. So it's not just common, we're going to learn these things and do these activities and now you're going to have this skill set. But how do I actually embody in my facilitation, in my preparation, in my follow-through afterwards, what it is I think we need to be with each other and how I think we need to be with each other. 
and doing that really imperfectly because I'm not arrived yet, that that to me feels different than when I just go, you know, work with a bunch of teachers on here's how you teach the five paragraph essay or algebra or kind of the more practical sort of skill workshops that it's got a different, a different weight and quality to it. Mm. Does that, um, this question just occurred to me. Does it, does it feel different? Like in your body? Do you, when you're doing that work? Yeah. I think if I'm just going in and I'm teaching someone like, here's how you design a lesson plan really well, that it's, it's pretty practical and direct and straightforward. And, what feels like different for this to me is there's a deeper, different, a deeper listening for what's needed, more of an in the moment responsiveness to what do I understand is being said is needed that maybe is not being spoken. Mm. And how do I hold that with a mix of here's what I know and have experienced and know I can like do and deliver on with what am I just going to be given in the moment and kind of letting myself and ego get out of the way so that whatever needs to come through me can come through me in the moment. But I also think like that's the space I really try to inhabit. So sometimes that bleeds over into the more practical stuff too. So like this summer, I was part of two people giving a presentation at our yearly meeting for the Challenging White Supremacy Working Group. And it was really clear to me that as a body, we didn't even really know exactly what we were talking about. So even though we were just supposed to deliver this report on here's what people are doing, it was really clear we needed some framing around it and then some invitation for how to hold it. But that if that was just an academic piece, we were going to stay in an intellectual space. And that if that was also done as like, ha, I'm ahead of you, or hi, you've got to get this, or I can call you out on this now, which is so much of the energy of how white people approach racial justice work, that that was also going to set us up for future failure and, and negative conflict. And so when Zanef, the other friend and I were playing this, we really talked about like, what do people need to learn? What do they need to hear? And then what do they actually need to feel both in what we were eliciting from them and being open to their emotions, but then how do we speak in a way that says we're going to hold up some hard truths, but we're going to do it in a way that is going to feel loving and that we're strong in that so you can also step into those holy places without being fearful. And that to me feels like a lot of what I understand a leading for ministry is, is like how do I hold up a truth that a body needs to hear in a way that lets people hear it as much as they possibly can and says, you don't have to be afraid of it. Wow, you just set me up so perfectly. I was going to ask if you um, feel like this work is ministry and, and, if, and how you define ministry. Yeah, so I absolutely think it's ministry, partly because I think it's about in service of making the world what it should be. Mm-hmm. So like, I have a really broad notion of ministry and really broad definitions. But for me, it absolutely feels like ministry because it also feels like a passion I can't lay down. It feels like, again, the more I step into it, the more I'm given that when I'm hiding out in what I know is easy or affirmation I know I'm going to get is when I falter, that when I'm doing it, I'm given things I'm not expected and that the part of me that's just Lisa like totally steps aside in a way that doesn't feel scary or diminishing at all, but like I'm actually tapping into the bigger part of what we're all supposed to be doing here that I think is actually more accessible than we think it is sometimes. And that it speaks to people. So like the affirmation is not like, oh, you did a great job. Like I'm not actually really ever interested in that when it's ministry. I'm really interested in, did I speak to your condition in a way that is growthful? 
-hmm. And it's hard because sometimes when people have had a really powerful or moving experience, they just want to say like, that was so great. And I'm like, I don't actually want to hear that. Like, I really want to hear like, did we speak to your condition? Because if not, I want to know why or how or what we could do more to do that. And I think that's particularly like at a yearly meeting setting a hard thing because people want to come up and say nice things. But like, I don't actually want that at all. You know, when after Zenef and I gave this presentation, people clapped and I almost got up and said, please stop. Like we're offering this as a gift of ministry. This was not a performance, you know, and I also was really worried that the clapping was like, well, now we heard this cool thing and can like in the same way, like, oh, I saw this great movie or I saw this great show or heard this great singer like. I don't want you to clap. I want you to sit with what we just offered because for both of us, it wasn't just what we offered. It was what God had to say in that moment. And you don't clap when God is speaking to you. Mm -hmm. Like, I think you humble yourself and listen to that and be open to it. And I think that clapping means I can step apart from where that might've touched my heart or my spirit. Because if I'm just here to teach you a thing or tell you a thing, that's pretty one directional, right? I need to, like, are you paying attention? Are you getting it? And readjust a little bit. But to me, ministry, like, right? It's about speaking to people's conditions. It's about saying what God wants to have said and done in this space. And if we believe that there's that of God in everybody, I'm never going to have it all. And you're never not going to have it all. You know, like, it's it's got to be that back and forth. It's got to be that listening. It's got to be that open to, like, who else in the room has a piece of this now and how am I making space for that or calling that out or putting myself aside for that and listening for that? Cause it's not about me. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the part that in, I feel like in our current Quaker culture sometimes because of all of the own personal wounding or hurts we carry about being in or out of groups, we conflate ministry with, somebody's more special or we conflate it with they've been chosen or we conflate it with oh if I name someone a minister then I'm saying the person next to them isn't and like I just don't think any of that's true I think that's our broken ego speaking that I really think ministry is exactly what it is in meeting for worship and we're all doing it fully which is like what am I open to what's going to come through me what's going to come through somebody else and is my job today to hold the door open for it? Is my job to be the voice for it? Is my job to just witness the person next to me? You know, and accepting that at some point my job will be all those jobs, right? Because it's not about me. <laughs>
right in, in a bad way that scripture certainly does get used that way however in the cons- in the way lisa is talking about it i hear that same thing in its life-giving form which is lisa steps away so that the power can be felt and heard and it isn't just lisa anymore she says and i, I totally love this and resonate with it she says, I don't like it when people clap or thank me. You don't clap when God is speaking to you. And she's trying to get away, get herself out and give herself over and say the thing that she is supposed to. She said, vocal ministry is saying what God wants said. And I think that if if that's the way we really understand it, you know, do we clap? Now, I don't necessarily think the people clapping are bad or wrong. But there's this question of like, what are we all doing together? Do we all think this is what God wants? We don't, I don't know as if we always have that shared understanding. Right. Or are we coming together to listen to what the divine might be speaking through a person for us versus to the performance or the skill of an order mm-hmm. that, that there's that distinction. Or teacher there. or workshop leader or whatever. Right, right. right. I like the way that she talks about ministry as as the work of making the world what it should be. She's it's a very broad notion. She also says, or making the world the way God envisions for us. That's gospel order, right? Yeah, and um, and that her her tests of ministry. She she sort of lays them out. You can't lay it down. The more you move into it, the more you're given. You can't just hide out in the comfortable place or the life goes away. And as you just mentioned, that doing this work, increasingly Lisa steps aside. And I really liked that thing around, it's a passion I can't lay down. And as you do it, more is given. Because there's all kinds of things that I'm passionate about that don't deepen me. Like I'm passionate about cooking and eating high caloric foods. Uh, However... Uh, that doesn't, well, I guess, I guess it thickens me, but, <laughs> but in a different way. But I mean, like, I think that's really, like, there are things, addictions or passions that are self-defeating. Right. And when you follow them, you can't lay them down, but they don't grow your spirit. A leading is something that you feel totally compelled by and you grow greater in those gifts of the spirit and in your deepening of a personal and spiritual nature. Like, that seems to be a real clear differentiating fact between kind of an obsession or passion and a leading. Right. Well, Gerald May, who was one of the founders of the Shalem Institute, talks about addiction as that thing which preoccupies us to the extent that we are separated from God. Yeah. And the Ignatians talk about it as disordered affection, that that you've you've put something in the wrong, you've put something in a place where God should be. Hmm. Hmm. Um, what's been different for you having an elder to support your work? Uh, it's only been for a month or so, so I'm still, we're still pretty new in the relationship 
it's felt great just to have a space to talk about it and to talk about the dynamics, particularly because I've been trying to do some racial justice work with leadership in the early meeting. Um, I felt really held and cared for. I feel like I have some greater accountability. You know, I, uh, I'm in the middle of dealing with a pretty significant protracted family crisis. And, uh, my elder kind of said, so how's your spiritual discipline and what are you doing? And it's like, oh, right. No one's asking me those questions right now. People are asking me if I'm okay, but on a given day, like maybe I have time for prayer. Maybe I have time for exercise. Maybe I have time to get the laundry done and my kid fed and us out the door. Um, and so to feel like there's someone who's paying attention to just my spiritual well-being in the midst of everything feels really significant. And I feel like I do have a greater sense of accountability in what I'm doing because I have someone I have to say, yep, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's what I'm feeling challenged by. Here's the thing I need to kind of like push through or deal with. And that there's somebody who's actually listening to that. And because I'm a competent workshop leader and facilitator and speak with a level of self-awareness and esteem and authority, there's an assumption that I have it all together, I think, often. And with an elder, you don't have to have it all together. And that assumption is never made. Like, kind of by virtue having an elder means you don't have it all together yet. And that's a pretty nice space to get to have and be in. And what you... Um... You've used the word accountability a couple times. Um, what does accountability mean for you, or what what would what is kind of a healthy accountability look like? Yeah, so I think it's it's not ducking out on the things that I maybe don't want to do or deal with. So, you know, I had to be honest with my elder. Like there are whole weeks where I have no spiritual discipline going on because I'm literally just getting through the week and getting done what I need to get done. And because I'm also good at like here's the polished front. I don't think people always see that. So it's both acknowledging like, yeah, there's some weeks where my spiritual discipline is non-existent. And then like, am I okay with that? Is that really okay or not? And not the excuse of, well, my parents are really sick and I'm a single parent and I work this crazy job and, you know, but like, can I, can I claim a ministry if I'm not maintaining a spiritual discipline? And again, that's not about anybody else or about how I'm seen or held. It's about like, am I being faithful and not using excuses that are real and valid and of the world to step away from what the greater calling is or to be able to say to my elder, I have to lay this down for a while now because I am so overwhelmed with what I have to deal with in this crisis. And that then being okay, but also knowing that somebody else is still kind of holding that. So it's not just like I'm dropping the ball and there it's gone, but that's really what I understand the minister-elder relationship to be like in the same way that I was talking when facilitating of like, what am I pushing on? What am I making space for? That the minister-elder relationship is about, there's this piece of work that God is expecting to get done and it's through an imperfect human vessel. And how can this other imperfect human vessel of the elder help the ministerial vessel do it as faithfully as possible, which to me also in Quakerism always means too, like what is the time to lay this down temporarily or permanently? You know, and that's how I understand gifts being different than skills, right? A skill is something I'll have forever in my life. A gift is something I'm given at this specific time to do this thing. And it will be taken away at some point when either I'm no longer the person who's supposed to be holding that or the work is completed in some way. And so I expect at some point, one of the conversations with my elder and I will have is, and now this is done. And what are the pieces that maybe still need to get passed on or tied up or moved along, but that it's not, ministry is not always lifelong. Mm -hmm. Have you 
ever witnessed someone um, laying something down? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's been a few good models in my life of either a committee really saying, we're done with this piece of work, or a person saying, I'm done with this now for different reasons. And I even remember one time I was speaking at Friends General Conference on a panel about a very charged topic. And I was sort of being asked to hold one of three viewpoints. And it was very, very charged. And I was talking, and what I had to say, I kind of said everything I had to say. And I said to the group, and I think I have finished saying what I was brought here to say. Like, it wasn't this, like, beautiful, glossy conclusion. And I remember an elder who I really, really respect came up to me, and she said, so what you said about the topic was great, but the fact that you modeled for us of not outrunning your guide, we need that so much more. And, you know, she just went on, and it was like, oh, right, but I had grown up in a culture where you could just say, and I've said what I've been given to say on this, period. And it didn't have to have this academic or outward world of saying, and now here's the conclusion and the beautiful segue and it's all kind of polished, but like if it's ministry, sometimes when it's done, it's just done. And you can say, oh, and it's done now. Or the spirit has left me. I've got, now it's just me here. And so I'm going to stop. And that that's fine. Um, do you, um, do you have any, um, physical experiences that tell you whether or not you're sort of still following the guide yes. or what's Yeah. That? So when I'm deep in it, I don't even always have an awareness of what the words are coming out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. I physically feel very calm and centered and grounded. Sometimes it's not like a detachment or disassociation, but I'm very clear that the parts of me that are Lisa are kind of a little bit to the side in a way that feels very fine and natural because I'll get to reclaim all the rest of it later. So there's nothing unhealthy or disassociative about it. And I know disassociation can be can be a survival, healthy survivor strategy, but it doesn't it doesn't feel like those things. It doesn't feel like I'm running away from or checking out or protecting. It just feels like I can move aside for this thing that needs to be happening. Other times it's an utter clarity about what the next thing needs to be, like particularly like when I'm facilitating a group or something without it having been planned or forethought or something I've done before. It's just like, oh, it's this. Sometimes it's, again, like in a group setting, like, oh, this person is supposed to speak or say or do something now, and so I'm just going to make the space for that happen. So a lot of the work I do in workshops, I think of as sort of also deeply ancestral work, like Mm. Uh, doing the work that our ancestors didn't get to do or need to atone for or different pieces. And so sometimes I can sort of palpably feel that and see the edges of those entities in the room with us Mm -hmm. in a way that helps guide like, oh, here's how people need to physically move right now. Or this is where somebody actually really is disassociating in a way that's going to be really hard for them. How can we help bring them back into their body? Or here's the other support that's in the room that if we make this motion, we can be open to. And that there's a sense of energy with it, too, like that I, I needed to do a six-hour facilitated conversation workshop recently, and it was after a week where I was just exhausted. I'd been taking care of sick parents. I'd actually, like, literally we had a school uh, building on fire during dismissal next to our school with little kids and buses in a street. And, I, you know, it was the same day that I had to go and basically break down the door of one of my students who had... I'd gotten so mentally unhealthy that they had secluded themselves in a locked space where they weren't safe and had to marshal resources to physically go get them and then get them to safety. So I was just like, I had nothing in the bank and had to do this six hour day by myself. And 
I woke up that morning with such clarity about the day, with energy. I went in, I people came kind of stressed and with different things and late and I could just be relaxed. Over lunch, the whole afternoon clearly needed to change from what I'd planned and I was just given the questions and next steps and I was able to drive myself home and then I just like, I completely tanked and crashed. But it was, I was given what I was needed for the time to do the thing I needed to do. And I was given it fully and abundantly so that I could be warm and relaxed and inviting and clear and focused when I think if I hadn't had to do that that day, I would have been on the sofa all day after this week that I'd had. And so the the physical parts to me match the clarity of what I'm doing in the task at hand. I'm given what I needed to do it when I needed to do it. Right. Um, do you ever, um, is there ever any hesitation about giving over to that no, I mean, like when there, when I have had hesitations, that's when I screw up because like I don't get out of the way and I'm like, okay, this has got to be about me and I'm like overthinking this now. And that every time I've ever just been able to step in and be like, okay, I'm going to be given what I need to do here or it's going to come, like I've never not been met. Mm-hmm. And that to me is very similar to like living as an out person that the first few times there was such fear in telling someone I was queer, like outing myself. And not that there aren't risks out in the world with doing that, but like I've just made a commitment that I'm not gonna be closeted because I'm not I'm not interested in that reality. And because I have so much safety and support in my life, I also get it's my responsibility, right? Because the more of us who are out, the safer it is for everybody else to be out. Like I was thinking about that this morning because we had come up in a conversation the first few times I outed myself and just like how much anxiety I had. And now like I out myself to a room full of a hundred strangers on a monthly basis. You know, great, these are people who've shown up to do a diversity workshop. So there's like some buy-in, but like it just doesn't have the same weight anymore because I'm so clear that that's how I'm supposed to be living my life and what I'm supposed to be doing. And the times when I have outed myself and been physically threatened, there've always been other people there to help protect me. And so again, I feel in that same way that because I'm, I'm in alignment with what my vision and purpose is, I'm being met with what I need to sustain um, it. Earlier in the conversation, you talked about the ways in which uh, our fear, our, mm-hmm. un, our unwilling, uh, um, our unwilling to be vulnerable mm-hmm. sort of holds us back from really mm-hmm. engaging. Um, and as you've spoken, I've thought about the ways in which um, as you describe ministry, um, or and being, and being like present to the flowing mm-hmm. stream is really about sort of setting some part of mm-hmm. Lisa aside mm-hmm. and that, that, that could be scary mm-hmm. if you were attached to Lisa mm-hmm. or worried that that wasn't gonna, mm-hmm. you know, come back or you were like attached to like, I have to know what's going to happen every right. second. Right. Um, <clears throat> what do you think has equipped you to have that kind mm-hmm. of um, comfort mm-hmm. with the vulnerability and the, mm-hmm. the going with the the flow of ministry, and are there ways that um, we could train and equip ourselves to be more comfortable with that discomfort mm-hmm. or with the yeah yeah? So I think there's two parts. So the the ways that I think I'm well set up to be open to that is having been a teacher for 20 years, like. You can plan the heck out of any class you want. And when you work with teenagers, it's just not always going to go that way. And when you work with a population of teenagers that are highly targeted by 
oppression and really hateful institutions and realities of society, there's even more ways that it's not going to go the way you planned. So just having been in front of a room full of people thousands of times and things going differently than I planned. And so both knowing that that's going to happen, I'm going to get through the other side of it, and all the skills of being able to think and just pivot on my feet, because that's what you have to do when you're a teacher. So I think having a teaching background is tremendously helpful. And where I think the other part of it is I didn't just show up and like, all right, here I am, I'm doing this ministry. Like it was really incremental and it really grew over time. And so all the times when I didn't step aside and that didn't work out so great, or when I got wrapped up in myself and after the fact realized I'd kind of blown it because I'd done that, or when I did actually freeze up in front of a group and like all were, I'm a verbal person. I'm a fast verbal person. I'm a fast thinker. And there was one time I was facilitating a group, something I had taught before and done before. And I froze completely like no words, no thought. I couldn't even look at people. I had to close my eyes because I was so panicked. And that like doesn't usually happen to me. And I was just given this moment of grace where it's like, just talk about what's going on for you. And so I just said, so let me just tell you what's going on for me. I'm freezing up right now. I'm completely panicking. I've lost all words. And and that was what that group needed to help. It opened up all this other stuff. And so it wasn't that I was supposed to have that process. It was the moment at which I could just be honest about what was going on opened up stuff. And, you know, I've frozen a few other times since then. And what I say is, remember, it wasn't that bad last time. It won't be bad this time. You know, or it's like parenting, like I'm going to screw up on my kid a million times, but three million times I'm going to get it right because I'm going to remember those million times that I screwed up. And so I think it's, again, like with anything we do that's hard the first time, it's doing it, acknowledging that it was hard, remembering we didn't freak out or die, and then keep moving. You know, and I think particularly as a white person who's really interested in talking with other white people about racism, like that's that's so much of what keeps racism in place. Like we think if we actually deal with our own racism, we're going to die. And we're not. We actually get a richer, better, wholer life. And other people do too. But that fear of being called a racist, of being seen as a racist, of having to confront what our ancestors have done and what we're currently doing is so deep. But when I've ever gone there, I haven't died. You know, it hasn't it hasn't been easy but I'm a stronger, better, wholer, more capable person for the times I've been able to step into that fear in a real way. And I can show up more for other people. It doesn't mean I always do it. It doesn't mean I'm not afraid. But like that's the truest thing I can say about fear is when you step into it, you just get something more than what you had on the other side of it. So lots of thanks uh, to Lisa for um, her willingness to speak with us and for offering us such uh, kind of jewels, just some real beautiful stuff in there and, and uh, her honesty. Um, so thanks a lot, Lisa. Yes, thank you very much. We want to thank Fresh Pond Monthly Meeting for the oversight of our ministry, for my committee and for Christina's committee. 
We also want to thank the Legacy Gift Fund of New England Yearly Meeting for financial support of this podcast. As well as the Obadiah Brown Benevolent Fund. And Salem Quarter. We couldn't do it without all of them and all of you listening. And we hope that as you move forward, you find creative and novel ways to use this content. And if you do, you'll let us know how you're using it. You can check everything out on ocacshow.org. Or you could find the podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Or Facebook. You can play it from lots of those different places. And we hope to hear from you and see you again in the audio space next week. Thanks for listening.